0: Let us open God's word that He would teach us. Our scripture reading comes from two places in 1 Corinthians. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Both of these are in connection with the Lord's Day uh, for this afternoon, which deals with the question of the the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic uh, Mass. And uh, so we'll look at two places where Paul speaks at length on the Lord's Supper. First then, 1 Corinthians 10, we'll read verses 14 through 17. participants in the altar. So far, I guess I was supposed to stop a verse earlier. Uh, Then we'll, we'll turn a chapter later to 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 through 29. As we reflect on this, let's sing together from Psalm 93, stanza 4. Every Sunday in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith. This afternoon, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 29, that's page 544 of your books of praise. And Lord's Day 29 continues the study of what Scripture teaches concerning the Lord's Supper, uh, particularly focusing on the differences between the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic Mass. So, we will read Lord's Day 29. The question there is, Are then the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No, just as the water of baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ and is not simply, and, and is not the washing away of sins itself, but is simply God's sign and pledge, so also the bread in the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, although it is called Christ's body in keeping with the nature and usage of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood? or the new covenant in his blood? And why does Paul speak of a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us by his supper that as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge First, that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood, as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs in remembrance of him. And second, that all his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for sins. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week, we or two weeks ago, we examined the meaning of the Lord's Supper uh, as a whole, and we considered what what did the Lord Jesus intend for the Supper to teach, and we considered its significance in our life and, and for our faith. Our goal was to see what Scripture itself teaches about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. This afternoon, we want to... Pause and, and look specifically at one particular question, which is what should re- we, Reformed Christians, think about the Roman Catholic Mass? Uh, or or per, to phrase it more accurately, how does the Roman Catholic Mass compare with what Scripture teaches about the Lord's Supper, as we saw two weeks ago? Is the Roman Catholic Mass, in other words, something that we can consider? Within the bounds of Scripture, does it come close enough to the truth that we can acknowledge that it's, it's one way of looking at the Supper and we have uh, perhaps another way? Uh, and to ask it another way, could you or I, if, if you went to the wedding of a Roman Catholic friend or relative, could we, for the sake of church unity and for the sake of the fact that you're there present, could you partake of the Mass? These are real questions that we, we do have to deal with. The Heidelberg Catechism devotes two entire Lord's Days to these questions, to dealing with the Roman Catholic Mass, uh, which from now on I'm just going to call the Mass for, for short. The Catechism uses the term Papal Mass, but that's not, not the best term because a Papal Mass is a special Mass uh, celebrated by the, by the Pope. Uh, so we're just going to call it The Mass. The Catechism devotes two entire Lord's Days, then, to the Mass. Uh, One Lord's Day is devoted to the question of transubstantiation. I'll define that in in a moment. And the the other one is devoted to the idea of the Mass in general or as a whole. And we can understand why the Catechism does this. It was written in the time of the Reformation when, by far, the, the biggest denomination if you want to call it that and and the denomination that surrounded the reformed believers was the Roman Catholic Church and the questions that reformed believers were struggling with was what do you do with respect to this mass all of our friends and relatives and neighbors all go to this why don't we they had to explain this also to their children why don't we go to that mass and why do we do things this way instead And when the Reformation broke out, most of the Reformers were in fact priests uh, themselves or monks or or doctors of theology in the Roman Catholic Church. It was only when it got to a point that they were excommunicated uh, that they had to turn around and, and conclude that the Roman Catholic Church was a false church. But they were still left with the same teachings of the Roman Catholic Church ringing in their ears. They had to understand, how are we supposed to think through these things? What do we think about them? That's why the Catechism devotes as much time as it does to the Roman Catholic Mass. It was written in that culture by people that had come from that church. And probably the single biggest difference between the Roman Catholic Church and and any Protestant church is the Mass. Uh, We might not think that. We might say, well, the real difference is our doctrine or our preaching. But from a Roman Catholic perspective, when you went to church, you went for the Mass. That's what it was all about. In fact, the preaching was in Latin. You didn't even understand it at the time. And so from a Roman Catholic perspective, this question is worth a lot of attention now today we might wonder is it still worth all, all this attention after all we don't live in in a largely Roman Catholic culture and, and probably very few of us though there are exceptions come from a Roman Catholic background now it's certainly true that we ought to focus our attention more broadly than than simple, simply on the Roman Catholic Church uh, we have unique challenges in our day, and we ought to look at them and address them. Uh, but at the same time, the Roman Catholic Church has not gone away. It's still very much here. It's still, today, the biggest single Christian denomination, if you want to call it that, in the world. And even in Alora, many of us know Roman Catholics. We have Roman Catholic friends, uh, neighbors, co-workers, perhaps, uh, relatives. In addition to that, there's also a massive ecumenical movement in our day, especially in Reformed churches, where there's a push towards unity with the Roman Catholic Church, a call to the end of the divisions. That call has been heard all the more loudly uh, since this is the the 500th uh, anniversary year of the Reformation. And there's something good about that. We should strive for unity. But at the same time, as we've seen from from Philippians, true unity is unity in the truth. And and unity in spirit and truth ought always to to precede any sort of external unity. Uh, Which means, if we ever want to rejoin with the Roman Catholic Church, or if you want to put it the other way, for them to rejoin with us, if that day should happen, which we should be praying for, we must first dialogue about the Mass and, and, the Roman, or, and the Lord's Supper. If we're ever going to overcome our differences, we need to know what those differences are. One more uh, note just on the importance of this topic. Uh, it's no secret that many Reformed and Presbyterian believers, especially in the last decade, have uh, crossed the Tiber, so to speak. In other words, they've They've gone over to Rome, and that's even happened within our own churches. Even one of our own seminary students did so recently. So these questions remain relevant for us. We shouldn't simply dismiss them as 16th century concerns. And so the Catechism has us look very carefully at what are probably the two biggest differences between the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic Mass. Uh, The one that we'll look at today is the question of uh, what they would call the real presence of Christ. Uh, In other words, the bodily presence of Christ. Is Christ bodily present? And then next week, we'll look at the the question of, is the Lord's Supper a sacrifice? It's a very important term for Roman Catholics to think of the Mass as, as a sacrifice that will be... Are concerned for next week, so what we want to look at this afternoon is this question of the real presence of Christ, which is to say, is Christ bodily somehow united to the bread and wine, and, and if so, in what sense? Uh, let me first explain why that question is so important. Roman Catholics believe that the the bread and wine literally become the flesh and blood of Jesus, even though they don't obviously taste like like meat and blood, yet they do say they are literally Christ's body and blood. And the result of that is that they worship the bread and wine. And when I say that, I'm not at all making a straw man or a caricature of, of uh, Roman Catholics. I took uh, very careful efforts in, in writing this sermon to make sure that I wouldn't mischaracterize uh, their beliefs. Uh, we Protestants can, can do that sometimes because of the distance that has passed between us and and the Reformation, that we sort of just assume what they believe and, and we can paint with a, a broad brush. We should be careful not to do that. However, Roman Catholics themselves would say the the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ, and therefore ought to be worshipped. You can see this uh, from, for example, the the Council of Trent. Uh, Let me just quote from one of their statements. Uh, They say there, The only begotten Son of God is to be adored, in other words, worshipped, in the holy sacrament of the Eucharist with the worship of Latria, including external worship. So that's the highest level of worship. It's a reverence and worship that only belongs to God. And they say that must be directed to the bread and the wine. You are to fall before it. You are to worship it. Uh, To continue, they say the sacrament, therefore, is to be honored with extraordinary festive celebrations and solemnly carried from place to place in processions according to the praiseworthy universal right and custom of the Holy Church, or so they claim. Uh, To continue, they say the sacrament is to be publicly exposed for the people's adoration, which is another word for worship. So they worship what they believe to be the body and blood of Christ. And not only do they worship the host, as they call the bread and wine, because it's, it's a host for Christ's body, Uh, not only do they worship the host, but they say that the host has a sanctifying power within itself. Uh, After all, it's Christ's body. And you think of the the woman um, in in the Gospels who reached out and touched Christ's body and she was healed. They believe that Christ's body has that sanctifying power. So if the bread and wine are, are Christ's body, it has a power within itself. So you can see how this understanding has a profound effect on what they regard the, the Mass or the Lord's Supper to actually be. Yeah. For, for them, it's Christ's body, literally here on earth, and, and it, that means it must be worshipped there, and it must be treated with great reverence because it has power within itself. And you might wonder, how did the Roman Catholics come to a belief like this. When we look at it, we think it's, it's silly to interpret Christ's words literally in this way. When he said, this is my body, as he held the bread, it's hard to imagine that any of the disciples literally uh, under, understood that in a literal sense, that Christ was literally holding up his own body in his hand. No, they understood that he was speaking in sacramental language. when It, it, it represents his body, just like Jesus says elsewhere, I am the door. He doesn't mean I'm a literal door with hinges and a doorknob. Uh, nobody was thinking that way. They understood him to be using metaphorical or symbolic terms. But the Roman Catholic Church defends this view vigorously. Uh, you talk to any Roman Catholic who knows their doctrine, and of course that, that, narrows, that narrows the equation a long ways, Uh, if you talk to a Roman Catholic who knows their doctrine, they'll be very quick to tell you that this belief in the real presence of Christ is as old as Christianity itself. And they can quote church fathers that speak of the real presence of Christ or or speak in, in language that seems to imply that. And so they would argue, you Protestants are the odd ones out here. You're the ones who are stepping out of the Christian tradition. Let me say something about that just as as an aside. When we get to discussions about the the Church Fathers, many of us Protestants will react by saying, well, who cares what the Church Fathers believed? After all, isn't what Scripture teaches what really matters. And and that's certainly true. Scripture is our ultimate authority. Uh, Doctrine is not defined by majority opinion over over the course of centuries. Uh, That's not the way it works. And and it's possible that the church can be wrong on an issue, even even wrong for centuries. However, that doesn't mean we should simply dismiss the church fathers as a matter of of irrelevance, as if who who cares what they thought. In in 1 Timothy 3, Paul speaks of the church as a pillar and bulwark of the truth. And, And one implication of that then is that the church is equipped with the spirit and is the guardian of the truth throughout the centuries which means that uh, the view that the church has had is a view that's given by the holy spirit uh, so we shouldn't simply brush off what the church has taught in former generations as something that's uh, that's irrelevant yes scripture is the ultimate Authority. And church church tradition doesn't carry authority on its own. Its authority is rooted in the Word of God. But church tradition is the work of the Spirit based on the Word of God. And, and as such, it should be taken seriously. If, if your view is out of line completely with what the church has always taught, that does mean you're probably wrong. Uh, and so we shouldn't simply dismiss the argument that here's what the church fathers taught that should matter to us uh, and we should investigate uh, those things it's a shame that that we protestants really know so little of our church fathers we we know the reformers very well. We don't know much about church history uh, and the peop- the major figures in church history before that, and that's a shame. It shouldn't be that way. In, in the time of the Reformation, the Reformers were the experts on church history. If you read uh, Calvin or Luther, they-, they quoted church fathers rigorously. They, they knew them very well. Uh, of course, unlike their-, their contemporaries, the Roman Catholics, uh, they were able to read the church fathers with with some critical eyes. They were able to compare them to to Scripture, but they certainly still had a high esteem for them. Now that said, what do we do when Roman Catholics will argue that the church has always taught the real presence of Christ? That argument shouldn't matter to us, and there's some truth in it. Uh, The church has always believed that Christ is truly present. In the Lord's Supper. Uh, And you can point to ancient sources that speak of the bread and wine as Christ's body and Christ's blood. But the point is, uh, as the Catechism also explains, that's sacramental language. The fact is, we ourselves speak of the bread and wine as Christ's body and blood. What has not been proven is that the church fathers believe that the bread and wine turn into something that they previously weren't. Uh, yeah, sure, they speak of Christ's body and blood on the table. So do we. Uh, that doesn't mean that they believed it in a literal physical sense. Let me give just one example from church history that that challenges this view of, of the Roman Catholics, and this comes from the church father Augustine. Uh, who most historians agree did not hold to the view that Roman Catholics claim that the Church Fathers held. And again, it's always hard to narrow down what they what they meant because all we have is is what they said, and and it depends always on on how you interpret it. But there's one discussion where Augustine wrote of the Lord's Supper. No one takes away from this sacrament more than is gathered with the vessel of faith. No one takes more away from the sacrament than they gather by faith. In other words, contrary to Roman Catholic teaching, they don't take the body and blood of Christ unless they take it by faith. That means it cannot be understood to be literally Christ's body and blood. Roman Catholics believe that every person who eats the host eats Christ's body, whether they're believers or not. That was not the view that Augustine himself taught. In fact, there, there's a famous debate as, as late as the ninth century between uh, an abbot, his name was uh, Pas- uh, Pascasius Redbertus, and uh, there was this monk, Retramnus, and, and there's this debate that they had as late as the ninth century over exactly this question. In what sense is Christ physically united to, to the bread and wine. They both agreed that there's a unity there, but they disputed over whether that unity is, is physical. And that's the view that the Roman Catholic Church is claiming has always been taught in the church. Uh, so they treat history far too simplistically when they claim that this is something the church has always taught or always believed. Yes, we have always understood there to be a unity, between Christ's body and and the bread and wine, but it's a it's a unity that is by nature spiritual and not physical. It's not till much later in history that there arose this view that that unity is completely truly physical. Uh, and especially, there's there's no evidence for a view that the elements actually change in their nature. That's the that's the view that Roman Catholics hold that. First they were bread and wine, then at a certain point when the priest rings a bell, some of you perhaps have seen a Mass, uh, there's a point in the Mass where the priest holds up the, the bread and wine and rings a bell, and at that moment they believe that the bread and wine literally transform into the body and blood of Christ. That is not a view that you will find in church history, and that's the view that they must prove. In that way, the the Roman Catholic view is is very clearly un-Catholic uh, in in that respect. Uh, one of the implications for us then is that we should we should not blindly accept as true. The claim that this is a view the church has always taught. Uh, That's something that Protestants are are very apt to do, because after all, we don't need the church fathers. All we need is scripture, and so we're happy to give them away. You can have the church fathers. We don't want to argue about what the church fathers uh, taught. We shouldn't dismiss the church fathers in that way. It, It robs us today of our own history uh, through the generations. Uh, we should, we're, we're very quick to give up ground here, but we shouldn't be, and, and we don't need to be. It's unfair, in fact, to the church fathers to, to lump them together with the Roman Catholic teaching of today. In fact, the church fathers always did speak of this real presence, and, and that's what we want to consider uh, now then. In what sense do we consider Christ as truly present Uh, The Reformers themselves spoke in this way. If you look at the Belgic Confession, it speaks in very, very strong terms of Christ's uh, body, his physical body, being present in in the Lord's Supper. The question is, in what sense is Christ physically present? Uh, In what sense are the elements united to Christ's body? And the argument that you find in the Reformation and far back into church history is that it's a spiritual unity, not a physical one. We are united to Christ. We're united to his soul. We're united to his body. All of Christ is united to us, but it's a spiritual unity. Uh, what that, that does contrast with much of the modern view of the, Roman, or of the Lord's Supper. Many today would say we're not united to Christ's body at all that the, the Lord's Supper is simply a memorial meal. It's a thing that we do to remember Christ, and maybe we're united by faith to Him, but we're not united to His body in any way. That's not a view that the, Roman, or, or that the Reformers themselves uh, taught. They believe, and, and our confessions teach, that we are united to Christ and to His body. If we're united to His Spirit, we're united to His body. Uh, one one uh, evidence... Of that, uh, if you distill this down, one evidence of that is the fact that Christ's body rose. And what implication does that have for our bodies? Well, that they too will rise. There's, there's a unity there, there's a, a connection there, but it's a spiritual unity. Uh, so if you're reading through the, the confessions uh, and, you, and you get to the Belgian confession where it talks about the Lord's Supper, consider this what the Belgian confession says. It says, we would not go wrong if we say that what we eat and drink in the Lord's Supper is the true, natural body and the true blood of Christ. And by true and natural, they mean physical. It's not wrong to say there's a sense in which we eat the physical body of Christ. However, it makes it one very important qualification. The manner in which we eat it is not by the mouth but by faith. In other words, we do receive the actual body of Christ. He belongs to us. If his spirit does, so too does his body. But we receive him by faith. We don't literally chew on his body. And that's, that's literally the Roman Catholic view, that we receive his literal body and, and chew on it. And, and it's, a, it's a very strange view uh, to hold. And so we say with the church fathers that, yes, Christ's body is present, but it's present spiritually. There's a unity that is spiritual. Now, that, that's, that brings us into a place that feels like an unsolvable mystery, and, and it's for that reason that we often shy away from all this discussion in the first place. What do we mean by spiritual unity and physical uh, presence in our modern day, we like our theology to be nice and plain and and simple. Uh, but we should be careful not to let that desire rule our thinking. That's why I read from 1 Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? There's a real unity there. There's a real connection there. Uh, the same with the, the bread that we break, he says, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There is a spiritual unity there. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And uh, the temptation in our day is to, to reduce all of our theology to simple, uh, digestible, no, no pun intended, uh, digestible ideas. Uh, but we should resist that temptation. Uh, we should recognize that the Lord's Supper has always been, and still is, a very, very central and meaningful part of what the church does. And there's a mystery tied to it. Uh, It's always been recognized as a mystery. Uh, The temptation for us modern Christians is is to take the mystery away and to reduce it to, to a simple ritual. And we say, what's the big deal, you Roman Catholics? It's just a ritual. It's just a memorial that would be to step out of Christian tradition. It's not just a ritual. It's a sacrament, and there's a difference between the two. Uh, A sacrament is a sign and seal of an ongoing bond of unity, and it carries with it real, abiding promises. We shouldn't throw those things away just because they're difficult to wrap our minds around. Christ gave us the Lord's Supper as a seal of the ongoing unity that we have with him. As we as we eat the elements, we do reflect on the fact that our our bodies too are tied to Christ's body. That's why we eat them with our bodies. Uh, there is a unity there that, that we ought to hold on to when we think of the Lord's Supper. Uh, we shouldn't uh, try to reduce it to, to a ritual or, or shrug off the language of mystery. Uh, Paul speaks uh, with great reverence uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 of the unity and the mystery that exists there. Uh, the fact is, we, we don't like mysteries in our, in our materialistic uh, age. Uh, we want everything to be very easily understandable. And, and the effect that that has on the Lord's Supper then is that we want to dissect it into pieces that we can uh, individually understand and then, and then put together. But when we do that, we end up reducing the Lord's Supper to simply a ceremony that we do to remember Christ. That's not all it is. It is something that Christ gives to us by which he gives himself to us. When he says, This is my body, take, eat it, he means, I'm giving myself to you. Take me and receive me. And we need to understand that sacramental nature of the Lord's Supper. It's not just a memorial. It's not just a ritual. It's something Christ has given to us for us to hold on to him and by which he holds on to us. So we reject the error of, of the Roman Catholics who claim that the bread and wine literally turn into the actual body and blood of Christ. It's a misunderstanding of Christ's own words. That's not what he meant when he said, this is my body. Uh, And and what it does is it turns the sacrament into something that operates powerfully all by itself. Uh, And that's why when you understand that, the Lord's Supper and the Mass are very, very different Rituals or, or ceremonies. It's why, it, that explains why the Mass is the central and the main thing in in Roman Catholicism. In fact, they call their entire worship service the Mass. Just because that's the main thing that happens within that worship service. So you talk about going to Mass. And we talk about going to church. Uh, we use different terminology because for us... The preaching is central because the preaching is what gives us faith, and faith is our bond with Christ. For the Roman Catholics, the sacrament is our bond with Christ. By physically eating him, we're united to him. Uh, They're very, very different rituals. We also then reject the error that the bread and wine are to be worshipped. The Catechism words it very strongly if you look ahead to, to question 80, uh, the Catechism says that the, the Lord's Supper or, or that the mass is an accursed idolatry, and we might think, "Oh, isn't that, isn't that strong language?" The fact is, Roman Catholics themselves will tell you, if the bread and wine do not literally become the, the body and blood of Christ, then it is an, occur, an accursed idolatry. You should not worship anything uh, that is not God. Uh, nothing deserves the right to be worshipped. The reason they worship the, the bread and wine is because they believe them to be God. Next week, we'll consider the, the, the second fundamental difference between the Lord's Supper and, and the Mass, and that's the nature of the Mass as sacrifices. These are obviously related issues. They, they sacrifice what they believe to be the actual body uh, of Christ. But for this week, let's take this study then as a reminder to be thankful for what the Reformers rediscovered in the Reformation. If it was not for their hard work and, and the, the biblical studies that they worked through, we might still be worshiping bread and wine instead of being united to Christ by faith. Uh, the, the starkness of that idolatry might have been more evident back in, in that day. The, the Roman Catholic Church, by God's grace, has changed a lot. There, the preaching is in English. The preaching often contains uh, clear elements of, of the gospel. And yet such things do continue today. And we should not forget that the darkness of the idolatry that the Reformers were facing in, in their day and that still exists In most parts around the world, uh, including even in Europe and in North America, It's, it's a striking thing to go to a Roman Catholic Mass. Yes, things have changed, and yet there is still so much idolatry. We should not stop speaking about that for the sake of unity. If we want to call the Roman Catholics to the true church and to be united, we should pray for that day. We should work for that day. But that will involve discussing the very real differences and the biblical truths uh, behind them. And so knowing then what Scripture teaches about the Lord's Supper and what Christ intended for it, let's go forward then with a spirit of grace and a willingness to speak and to dialogue, to not simply brush off our Roman Catholic friends or neighbors or colleagues. Let's not be unwilling to speak, nor, nor uncharitable. We can listen carefully to, to how they defend, uh, what, they, what they defend. Uh, by the grace of God, one of the consequences of the Reformation is that Roman Catholics, many of them do understand a lot more about the gospel than they ever would have in the days of the Reformation. We can hear that. We can appreciate that, and we can work with that, but let's not be afraid to also speak the truth in love. And let's never be ashamed of what the Reformation gave us often what the Reformers gave us at the cost of their own lives. Uh, That was certainly the case for Guido de Bray, the the author of the Belgic Confession, who was killed for making that statement of faith. Uh, The faith and doctrine that's taught in our confessions is deeply, profoundly scriptural. And it's rooted in Scripture, and it's dotted with cross-references to Scripture. It's something that we ought to be immensely thankful for. It's a shame that we don't know the church fathers as well as the reformers did, but in in their defenses of these doctrines, you find abundant references to the faith that Christians have always had and the places where that faith is grounded in scripture it 's one of the treasures that the Reformation has has given us uh, it 's true the time that led up to the Reformation was a very, very dark time, uh, both doctrinally and morally. If you look at the lives of the people and even the lives of, of the leaders of the church. But we shouldn't think that the, the spirit was altogether absent in that day nor throughout the rest of the, the 1,500 years of church history. The more we can see of the church fathers, the more we recognize the faith that God has given to the church throughout the generations. So in that spirit, let's continue the work of the Reformation. Let's not be afraid to dialogue with Roman Catholics, those that God puts in our lives, and, and to bring Scripture then to bear on those dialogues. Perhaps someday The church can be united again. God could certainly accomplish that. But it will only happen if there's first a unity of spirit and truth. And that's what we work for. That's what our fathers in the Reformation worked for. That's what God's word calls us to keep on working for. Amen.